I became you when I was watching. Look at all these notes I made. Holy crap. Just to remind me what order. I got their names all spelt wrong, but I, I spelt them wrong consistently, and I think that's important. Welcome to Feather and Mountain Podcast, Season 2, Episode 9. I am your host, Delusions of Grendel, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Greyhame Confusion. Greyhame, how you doing? I'm doing just great. I'm uh, grooving at our cottage up north of Toronto and uh, just installed this Starlink thing, so hoping that we have a smooth, highly transparent interaction, so... No jitters. Let's hope for no jitters. Fingers crossed. Mm -hmm. uh, we are back today after a brief two-week pause uh, talking about the Wheel of Time. I know nothing. That is what this whole podcast is about. The Wheel of Time. Lord of the Rings, we love you. We'll see you in season two. But today, right now, Wheel of Time, we're diving back in. We are talking about... Season one, kind of as a whole, but breaking it down episode by episode. Today, of course, being our inaugural return to the Wheel of Time, we will be talking about episode one, Leave Taking. Again, because if you've listened to this podcast before, we kind of already touched on it, but that was before we knew where season one was going as a whole. Now that we've seen all eight episodes, we're back to examine this from the lens of a veteran reader, myself, and a never reader, Graham Confusion, although, sorry friends, he actually has read the first book, The Eye of the World, but hasn't read the rest of the series, which I think plays a little bit more into season one as a whole yeah i did i did um read the first book just before the season came out so i would try to follow along better uh i've only read it once i don't know it deeply um i had a hard time reading through through uh, covid times i don't know why it's just hard for me to focus on reading a book anyway um I don't know it well. I, I really don't know where the character's going, and I'm looking forward to rewatching the series because I, I'll i be like you, where I'll, I'll know the uh, the televised version better, like you know the movies better for Lord of the Rings, not so much the, the book. So that'll right. be my life, yes. <laughs> um, and for a fun twist for this season, just because it is a rewatch, we will be bringing in guests to come and rewatch with us uh, so we can have a ton of different perspectives, both from first-time readers who are at various points throughout the series and from long-time readers like myself. Uh, Graham will remain... <laughs> the only non-reader of the series. Uh, so we'll be bringing in a ton of other podcast creators uh, into the rest of the season. But this episode is just going to be Graham and I talking about our thoughts, both again for the first episode and for the season. So let's just get right into it, I guess. Uh, episode one, leave taking. How did it feel Having seen all eight episodes, what is your reaction going back and watching this first episode before we really know anything about where the characters are going? So uh, I watched it as it came out, right? So last November, so almost an entire year ago, uh, I watched episode one, and I think I've watched it a couple times. I think I watched it with your mom once, and then I watched it with you, obviously, uh, so I could pick up more things. I never watched it with Peregrine, by the way, who is a, a real deep nerd in this um, 
this world, uh, that would be kind of fun to do because he would point out things that I would never see. Uh, but anyway, I watched episode one and I haven't skipped ahead. I've only watched episode one so far. I got to say, I liked it so much more on this watch through than the first time I watched it. Probably because I was trying to compare it to the book that I had just finished reading when I watched it the first time. But this time I just watched it as a person turning on the TV and watching it. It was great. I, I mean, I think we spoke yesterday a little bit. Uh, they really rushed through a lot of stuff to try to fit it into an hour. Uh, and, and it was a very high-paced uh, show. Uh, and, you know, if it's your first time watching, I could see where you get confused the characters, what their names are, who's this and all that. As, having watched it and gotten more comfortable with the characters, it was really enjoyable to watch. So if I, I will just say, start this off. Folks, if you haven't rewatched it or if you haven't watched it in six months, go back. It's so much better on the rewatch. Yeah, I I definitely agree with that. It is nice for me. I mean, I watched it a ton when it first came out, at least at least ten times. Um, but it has been really nice to take a pause for about a year and then come back to this series. In part because I've really enjoyed all of the behind the scenes footage we've been getting. I really appreciate all of the care that Rafe and his team have put into this and the thought that's behind where they're going. And it also helped with episode one to know ultimately where where the end of the season left off. So I know why they were putting things in the first episode that then paid off later. Like things, questions I had about Layla, for example, which we'll touch on, and the hand on the stomach and the suggestion of pregnancy. I now feel like I know why that was there. Hmm. I don't necessarily love the reason, um, <laughs> but I understand why it's there. And it has been, it was easier, I think, to distance myself, like you said, from the books. It was easier to say, this is a whole different story. This is where they're taking it. Uh, I actually really enjoyed the inclusion of Leandrin and the Red Aja sisters chasing down that channeler at the beginning. Yes, there were some moments that felt a little awkward. There was some dialogue that maybe felt a little unsteady, but on the whole, I can see why this was the pilot episode and hopefully uh, the intention of, of bringing in new people to this world, which we have seen in the community, people who started watching the show and then because of the show have now picked up the books, uh, which is cool. It's, it's really fun to have that perspective. I never thought that we would get that with Wheel of Time, where people have been introduced to the TV show first, fell in love with it, and are now coming back to like find out the story behind the text. Yeah, I think I think the number of readers for Wheel of Time will go up dramatically. Uh, and of course, once they announce the date, I, th I think we're at, at day 278, according to your Twitter friend. It's hilarious. <laughs> I still try to like it every day. I stayed away from Twitter for a little bit while we were doing our hiatus, but uh, came back on and I think it was day 278. But anyway, once they give the hint on release date of season two, uh, I think a, a lot more people will start watching it again because they'll start releasing trailers and all that fun stuff. Uh, and then the readership will go up. And I've, I've found a lot of folks in the um, in the Twitterverse um, announcing, hey, I watched the show. It's really good. I was surprised. I'm, now I'm going to read the books. And then some people literally got engorged with them and just kind of read, what is it, 15 uh, of the books all the way through. So, you know, uh, it's been interesting following those folks along over the last month and a half. And for some people, 15 books in a month and a half, and they're not small books. That's really impressive. 
<laughs> Thank you, Michael Kramer and Kate Redding for allowing us to listen to you at two times the speed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe it's audiobooks. I never thought of that. I thought it was just regular. I keep on forgetting about audiobooks as a platform. I guess I'm just showing my age. So with having seen the first episode again and knowing where episode eight leaves off, uh, I'm just going to ask this at every every time we rewatch an episode. What is your current ranking of the episodes from your best recollection? I really didn't like episode eight, but it had nothing to do with the storyline. It was just the very end. It, I didn't like it. But we'll come to that when we talk about episode eight. Um, I, I really enjoyed one. I would probably put it like third best of the eight that I saw, maybe fourth. Like certainly... Uh, Again, fast-paced, lots of action. You had to really pay attention as things were going along. Um, I had forgotten it was Leandrin, by the way, and, and team that were doing the run-up after the uh, the two dudes. Well, I guess the one dude and the, his crazy partner. But anyway, uh, I had forgotten it was that. So yeah, I, yeah third or fourth best of, of the uh, of the episodes. I think you know, is it episode four and five? I think were the ones that I really, really enjoyed the most when we uh, went through it the first time but i i can't remember i'll obviously remember more when we get there but uh, i'm trying to watch them one at a time so i don't want to just binge so anyway yeah i I really enjoyed it i thought it was good uh the writing was solid and and i think you had mentioned when we were doing the the rings of power conversations that they filmed episode one and maybe episode two then they had to take a break for uh covid is that correct uh, with Wheel of Time, because they started filming in September 2019, and then they took a break in uh, March for COVID, they had filmed six episodes. Ah, okay. Uh, so they were they were pretty far along and had filmed six episodes, but then and then the hiatus happened and they resumed filming in uh, July 2020. But during that period of time, from March to July 2020, Barney Harris left. Oh, that's why he left when he left. Okay, I got it. I yeah. got it. That's so why he, there's no Matt in the last two episodes, or very little In the Matt, last two know. episodes. So oh, they okay. they had to scramble, and that's why a lot of episodes seven and eight were rewritten. It was, you know, kind of a conundrum, because if you, if you, I'm not going to go ahead and spoil what happens at, eye, like, in the eye of the world, but Matt, for, for show watchers only, Matt is there. Uh, in Shinar with the team. And he was behind, uh, obviously, in Tarvalon is how they left it uh, in this right. in this season. Um, so there was a difference there. And, and it did cause some heavy rewrites, plus the restrictions that COVID uh, imposed on the team upon their return, which can really change the dynamic of a set. So episodes seven and eight are the ones that were filmed uh, post shutdown and obviously the reshoots as well from episodes one to six had to be done. And again, without the benefit of, of Barney Harris to reshoot anything that they might have thought Matt needed. There's some understanding and forgiveness there is what I would say for especially the last two episodes. Yeah, that makes sense. And you also talked about they, they weren't allowed to touch other actors at this point. We still thought it was COVID was based on touch. So they had to change some of the other uh, features around because uh, there were rules about how actors could interact, right? So yeah, that make, that makes a lot of sense. And um, I didn't realize that's wh- where Matt left. 
and remember watching it going, hey, but Matt has a big part to play because I had just read the book uh, and things didn't happen. So, uh, But it was fun watching Barney Harris because, um, A, he did a good job as Matt. Like, he, like his he first couple job. of episodes were great and I thought his uh, demeanor as the character was excellent. And it's I, I'm really excited about the new actor because he seems to be just so enthused about doing it. But I, it, you know, it's disappointing that they had to change and that he left. And I'm sure he had good reasons for it. I don't know if it's ever even come out as to why he left. But you know, long term commitment or whatever, just didn't want to stick with it. But yeah, uh, that that makes so much sense. Um, and he did do such a great job. At least the new guy looks like the old guy. So you know, as a <laughs> as a as a watcher, you're not going to miss a whole bunch. I'm sure the accent and the the voice is going to be significantly different. But yeah, and I, I will say, part of the benefit of taking this year before going back and rewatching has been to heal my heart a little bit yeah. <laughs> for Barney Harris. I'm, I really wanted to get to a state. I don't like dwelling in the negative, but I really wanted to get to a state where I could be excited about Donal Finn coming in and replacing Barney Harris uh, in large part, because I have been following the series since uh, well before Rosamund Pike was cast Mm. as Moraine, which was released in June 2019. That's kind of when she posted it to her Instagram. And, you know, our Twitter of time collective lost their shit. Uh, (laughs) And then the the bigger casting came out in September 2019. And that's when everyone was released. So I started reading these books in 1999. 20 years later, I see Barney Harris cast as Matt Cawthon. And Matt Cawthon is... Probably, I think I've said this before, but probably my favorite literary character, a close, very close second is Nynaeve Elmira. Um, but Matt Cawthon is, is right, like he has my whole heart. And when I saw the casting, and it was Barney Harris, that he just became Matt Cawthon in my head. He looked like him. He felt like him. It was just everything I had ever imagined. And then it took a bit, you know, three years later, I'm now getting used to the idea that Barney Co- or Barney Harris is not going to take me yeah. all the way with Matt Cawthon. Um, and a large part of why I'm so okay with this now is because uh, Bane and Chiad and Anas, who uh, they now have a podcast together called The Lights Work, where basically they're just going around and doing great things with this community. Uh, they went and saw Donald Finn in Boston uh, on Sing Street or at his performance of Sing Street, and they had nothing but positive things to say. His engagement, as you mentioned, with the fandom, uh, his delight at the New York Comic Con panel. Mm-hmm. I am now ready and excited for season two. Donald Finn, uh, we will talk about him a lot, I'm sure, once we get season two, you know, more trailers, more behind the scenes stuff, more hopefully dialogue from him and season two itself. We'll talk at length about Donald Finn, but I'm very happy with this podcast just being a tribute and a praise to Barney Harris for his fantastic work uh, because he he really, really stole the show uh, for me in episode one with his small parts and the way that there are they're putting in things that will come to fruition with Matt's character very right. early on. Right. And without further ado, let's let's just start talking about this episode uh, and what happens in it and the characters themselves. So the episode opens with Moraine's voiceover talking about the dragon and how the audacity <laughs> of the dragon to 
you know, basically take on the dark one and uh, how it's the ability has now been tainted in men. And 20 years ago, the dragon was born, yada, yada, they leave on their quest. We then flash to the scene of Leandrin and the Red Aja sisters chasing down the two men, we think. And then we realize the madness already has him. And that leads to what remains one of my favorite quotes from the entire season one stretch, which is when Leandrin's off her horse and she's approaching this man. And she says to him, you see what we've come here to do. It's a gift. You should thank me, really. This power is meant for women and women alone. And when you touch it, you make it filthy. <laughs> that was one of the things I, I made some notes this time, which is very unlike me. Um, I, I mean, and, uh, so I'm a little bit familiar with the world because I, I read the first book, but the uh, what they brought out really quickly was the importance of women. The women have the power. Uh, men will go crazy. Uh, and they also gave some hints early on about um, what the Sedai have, right? So you saw uh, Moraine's ring when she's getting dressed. One thing I, I couldn't pick out, and I thought you and the, the wider tw uh, Twitterati might know, when she's putting, when Moraine's putting on her cloak or gown, they, sh they show her back, and I couldn't make out if there was a, something on her back. I kind of paused it a few times. It looked like maybe a scar, but I couldn't really, I couldn't really make it out. Anyway, uh, they showed some of that stuff, the, the, the dagger, the, the, the ring. And then, of course, when the women in red are chasing um, the dragon, the fake dragon, uh, they show Leandrin's ring as well. So you know that they're of the same type of person. And borrowing from Lord of the Rings, you assume that they have they are a wizardry of some sort uh, because of the rings of power. Uh, and, and obviously red and blue. So you get introduced to a few concepts pretty quickly, although there's no explanation yet, which is fine. They have eight episodes to explain things. Uh, and, and it kind of tweaked my my um, imagination. And, and I appreciated that now, of course, that I know where things go. But they did a nice job of just laying things in that was easy for new watchers to see, to pick up on some of the magic and mystery of the uh, of the of the world. And they yeah, talk about the exa wheel, too. Exactly. They do talk about the wheel. They do. And when they, I, I, there was a, a segment pretty early on where they pulled back and there was, I think Lan and Moraine were there and it was like the, the yin yang, yin yang symbol, but it was like the half of the wheel was etched in the ground. It was all the dead goats. That oh, was that's on when you see what's called the dragon fang. So dragon it's fang, the, okay. the black, um, uh, on the yin yang, it's the black, uh, one that goes down and it was the dead sheep that were all bloody right. yeah so we'll we'll talk about that but yeah the imagery of course yes is beautiful very powerful i mean for, well like speaking of lan after you know we see leandrin and the red sisters we then zoom up or scan up and we see moraine looking down moraine and lan looking down at this and moraine's thought is just it's not him yeah Let's that's actually on. one of the quotes <laughs> like, like, it's not him. fuck that guy <laughs> we're going no. to the two rivers yeah <laughs> 
Fuck this. But land, because we need some exposition for the watchers. We need to know what they mean by him. Because Moraine had introduced the concept, I should have said this, but she introduced the concept that the dragon was a man 3,000 years ago and had been reborn 20 years, but we don't know if he's been reborn as a man or as a woman. Right. And yes. that was, I thought it was seamless. When I watch, I remember watching that for the first time, and I was like, "What a clever way to do this!" Because yeah, you don't know what way the soul is going to be reborn as. Uh, we just know the dragon has been reborn, and it's been three thousand years. It's not out of the ordinary to query how this person will be reborn and who this person will be reborn as. And Lan then drawing, you know, on the exposition, he's like, well, this guy was 20 years old. He could channel. Like, what do you mean it's not him? He had all the makings of it. And Moraine then says, I've heard rumors of four Taviran in the two rivers. That's where we're going. I still have questions about who those rumors came from and how you know that there are Taviran in the two rivers. I don't know if that was ever fully answered to my satisfaction in the season, but I'm going to let it slide because we're also introducing the concept of Taviran this early. So it's going to be something that's explored throughout the series as a whole. And sure, let's throw the word in there in the first episode so people wonder and say, like, what are Taviran? What does this mean? I missed it. I, I didn't. I didn't even pick that up. I, I didn't hear them talk about it. I didn't uh, or know that it was Taviran. So I, I never heard them use that word. So as I'm listening to you, I'm going. Ooh, I missed something. <laughs> I have to go watch it again. <laughs> <laughs> Subtitles and also intense listening and intense analysis. <laughs> right, subtitles. Wheel. You got to turn those back on. So, yes. Got to turn them back on. And from Moraine, we'll just kind of follow her and Lan's journey as we talk about her. Uh, the next time we see her, you know, is when her and Lan walk into the inn together. Mm -hmm. That and, entry is beautiful. Oh, I'm, I'm Landman Dragoran. And this is Moraine. Full yes. stop. Doesn't need any more title to that. She is a woman who can command a room like Madonna using <laughs> one name only. Then Marin Alvir sees her, sees the ring. And one change they made from the books is to have people in the two rivers know who Aes Sedai are. Yes. That they're not just mythical, be able to recognize the ring and... You know what? Especially on rewatch, that doesn't bug me in the slightest because we as show watchers need to know. We need to know the impact of what an Aes Sedai is. And I think if we were just, if the people of the Two Rivers were just as confused as we were, it would have really muddied the episode. It would have made it hurt a little bit harder to follow. This way, it's clear explanation. Yeah, they would have had to take the time to explain that. Right. Somehow they would have had to put a scene or two in that would explain that people are nervous or, or weary of the um, I I. So I think that I, I wasn't didn't bother me at all because I didn't know that. Uh, I can't I couldn't remember that part of, that the book took a while to explain that stuff. So uh, there was no no issue for me. <laughs> I did not care. Nope. No, not in the slightest. Then we get the great scene after we get, you know, Moraine scanning the room. She we pause on each of the four Taviran plus Nynaeve. Wink, wink. We pause on each of them as she kind of assesses them. And then the next scene is uh, Landbutt as he walks into the tub. And we get to see the beautiful platonic relationship that exists between Moraine and Lan, which is still, I love their chemistry. I love 
their dialogue. I love their comfort with each other. These are people who have been on the road together for 20 years. You can really feel that in this scene. And uh, she warms the water for It could be warmer. Him. Yeah. <laughs> so a couple of the things that I noticed. First of all, that scene, uh, it could have been as they show Lan walking in in his boots, right? So you basically see his boots at the bottom of the scene. That could be right out of an old Western. All I could imagine, you know, right? as a kid, <laughs> you'd watch a Western and you'd hear the swinging doors get pushed open and then go... Of the saloon. And that's exactly... I, I was waiting for them to pan up and show the doors that were swinging, but they didn't, obviously, didn't do that. <laughs> and then, yeah, Land does all the top talk, talking, does the introduction, and the, one of the quotes, people see the ring, and so everybody goes, oh, dear, she's a she's a Sedai. And uh, my my favorite quote was, "Parent, she looks like a normal person." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we we get Moraine and Lan in the bath together. Uh, another thing that he asks Moraine while they're sitting in the tub, and kind of the importance of this scene is, "You think it's one of them? Which one?" And then it just fades. Like we don't know, um, but Moraine now has honed her sights on uh, the four that she suspects as being potentially the dragon. And uh, we, like Moraine, are left wondering who it could be. And that is the fun mystery, much like who Sauron was in well, Rings it, of Power. It is, although as a watcher, you can figure out that Rand, who's, by the way, in his first scene walking with his dad, they never say his name. I was waiting for them to say his name, but they never do. They just You just see this tall ginger walking along the road with who can use a bow and arrow really well. Uh, and then uh, you see lots of Perrin to begin with. You see Matt looking after his, uh, his sisters, his interaction with Pat and Fane, and then you see Egwene getting pushed into the river and all that stuff. So my point is, as a watcher, you kind of figure those are the four, right? So it's like, oh, okay, it's one of them because they're the ones they're focusing on, so there's got to be a reason. And they yeah. all look to be about the same age. So you could put it together pretty quickly without uh, without too much mystery, I think. Yes, that they're going to be the four that we're focused on, but yeah. we still don't know who it's going to be of those four. G correct. The next, the next day after the bath, we get Moraine and Lan walking through the village. They're looking around. Moraine says to Lan, you think one of the Eyeless is already here? Then we both have work to do today. And off they go to do their work. <laughs> I'm laughing because I wrote down eyelets, not eyeless. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Subtitles. Put on the subtitles. Yes, I actually wrote that quote down too. We have work to do. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> We've got business. Business. It's business. It's business time. So they pull up their socks and Moraine's business uh, involves going to chat with Nynaeve at the sacred pool that Nynaeve is scrubbing. And Lan's business is going exploring in the woods uh, and hunting for signs of fades uh so the merdral trollocs whatever else right. is around finding those dead sheep in the shape of the dragon's fang beautiful beautiful cinematography beautiful we get the great conversation between moraine and nynaeve that we'll touch on when we go talk about nynaeve later in this episode and then from that the next time we see well we see them briefly when there's the lantern lighting ceremony Yes, that was very nice, too. That was a nice touch. They never explained what it was for, but it was after watching it for a second, you realized what it was for. They did a really nice job of gently introducing that. And again, the cinematography in that whole scene, I mean, you got Rand lighting 
the one with uh, his dad. And then, of course, they show, show the whole town. And Nynaeve being off on the side, doing her own with a little tear down her cheek. Um, it was it, w- it was really done tastefully and quietly. And they never said exactly what it was for, but you figured it out pretty quickly. Yeah, uh, and we'll touch on that when we, when we go to Rand. There is a brief allusion to lighting the way home for those you have lost okay um so and it doesn't matter where you are to do it it's just helping them find their way but you never talk about who i mean with rand and tam it's pretty easy to understand who the she is or the her is that they're referring to but for other people after we get that from rand and tam then we see everyone else and we see the many people who have lost in this moment. Everyone is kind of sending these lanterns out. Everyone has suffered a loss. Everyone is trying to help their loved ones find their way home. But we'll we'll get to that. Uh, So we have a brief interaction between Moraine and Egwene at the lantern lighting ceremony. Then we, the next time we see this badass, she is coming out and channeling. It's part of the battle when the Trollocs come into the two rivers. I especially on the heels of Rings of Power and House of the Dragon, re-watching this in the wake of those two epic series, I liked this scene so much more than I did the first few times. Like, seeing the weaves, actually seeing the power, because, you know, in Rings of Power, we see magic being used, but we don't see the origins of that magic. We don't see what's happening from the magic wielder. We have no idea. It's just, you know, it's... Um, I put my hand up, people get blown backwards, whatever it might be. There's fire, you know, I'm blowing things, the fire is is being cast. I'm speaking of Eminem uh, from Rings of Power in this moment. But with Moraine being able to see what she is channeling, it felt that much more impactful to me as a viewer. And it really differentiated Wheel of Time from Rings of Power and House of the Dragon. The magic felt more concrete and more real. Loved the way they showed her exhaustion as she was working through. It took a lot of energy uh, for her to make this stuff happen, especially when she started throwing the bricks and the and the stones and, <laughs> you know, de- taking apart the building to uh, kill all the Trollocs that were there. Uh, just how exhausted it made her. And you could see the sheer effort that she had to do. I thought, again, subtly done, but so very well done. I would also say, because I know the budget for this show is dramatically less than for or House of the Dragon, or Rings of Power. It was good. Like, it was really well done. I didn't see any any double images or anything like that. Like, it, 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 uh, it, was, it was really, really good of special effects and, uh, and well-directed. I don't, I don't know who directed this episode. I forgot to pe- peek at that part at the beginning. But it, um, it was so well done. Excellent. So the director for the first two episodes is Uta Breswich. Oh, I hope okay. I'm pronouncing that correctly because they did the directing in this in in blocks of two. Oh, okay. So I know Rings of Power jumped around a little bit with their directors, but Wheel of Time was very much in in two blocks. So the same director did one and two, then three and four, five and six, and seven and eight is how how they broke it up. So Uta Breswich, who I believe is also a producer on the show, so she's pretty familiar with the world and and the world building, which I think is part of the reason that she was brought in to do the first two episodes, because she understands the overall uh, message that they're trying to convey here. And yeah, speaking of Moraine's exhaustion, 
the moment when the uh, Trolloc knife gets buried in her shoulder Mm -hmm. and you can just see how much it takes out of her and then her and Lan's communication and just knowing that she is going to stand up and defeat the Trollocs, even though there's too many of them and they're feeling overwhelmed. Really, really, I don't know. It just, it hits so much harder on this rewatch a year later, knowing Moraine and Lan's relationship, knowing how the show portrays that, their connection, watching the two of them work in tandem during that battle sequence, Lan knowing when to dodge, uh, when to bend over, the way that they seamlessly work off of each other. They just have this deep connection. And uh, yeah, that is most powerfully conveyed, in my opinion, when, you know, Lan is the one who rips the the blade out of Moraine's shoulder. So we get the badassery of them fighting, the final explosion as the wine spring in collapses, and actually all of that rubble and dust that envelops Moraine and Lan. So that was re- a real effect. So Lan, played by Daniel Henney, when he comes running over to cover Moraine, Rosamund Pike, uh, with the rubble and dust then sweeping over them, that was real, like smoke and stuff that was enveloping them in the moment. Rafe has indicated that they tried to be as practical as they could possibly be in their effects. The next time we see them after the Winespring Inn collapses is the following morning when Moraine is basically going around. She heals Tam, deals with Rand's snippiness, and clear exhaustion is taking over her. She mounts her horse, Aldeeb, And we get one of my favorite moments, again, from the whole season is when she gives us the voiceover Mm. that opens the opens every chapter of every book right so she she gives us that and i'm really hoping this is a trend that continues in each season where we get she comes in and she says the wheel of time turns and ages come and pass leaving memories that become legend legend fades to myth and even myth is long forgotten when the age that gave it birth comes again in one age called the third age by some a wind rose in the mountains of mist The wind was not the beginning. There are neither beginnings nor endings to the turning of the Wheel of Time, but it was a beginning. So that moment, like that was such a nod to book readers. And I just, yeah, it really made me fall in love with this show all over again, that that's how they closed the episode and really opened the season for the adventure that is to follow. Season and the series, I should Mm say. So I guess... With with Moraine and and her role in this, you as a effective never reader, watching this, not knowing Moraine's journey or her arc or what we're supposed to think of her, how did you how do you leave episode one feeling about Moraine? I mean, I, I see her as the the Gandalf kind of role, somebody who's the has the wisdom and the experience and obviously magic and abilities nobody else has. Uh, the prophecy reading at the end, actually, I was re- reading my notes as you were uh, saying, I, I should have paid more attention to the words. I remember the part about the wheel turning and all the stuff. The reference to the Third Age, very Tolkien-like. Uh, there was something else as she was going, uh, you could, both you and Perrin, uh, when you were telling me about the books would always be, well, the first book is so like Lord of the Rings. It is and it's not, but you can certainly see where he built the world, leveraging the same thing. You talk about the different ages and 
uh, you know, how time passes differently for people and stuff like that. It ended quickly, though. Like, uh, you know, okay, guys, we got to go. No, I mean, like, we really got to go. There are now. 300 Trollocs. We got to fucking go. Let's yeah, go. go. Go, 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 go. And off they run. And, uh, you know, you, you don't, you, you kind of get images of uh, Rand, you get uh, Egwene, you get Perrin, you get Matt. They have no idea, but they got to go. And everybody at the town's kind of like, you guys have fun. Bye. We're not going to really talk about it, but bye. We'll see you. And it's like they don't really get into the, how the families react and all that sort of stuff. Um, I don't remember seeing Tam give Rand the sword. I know Rand took it when Tam was hit by the Trolloc. So he, uh, they don't really talk about the sword. I remember in the book they talked about, you know, the heron and all that sort of stuff. Uh, so a lot of things just happened. Like it just, get out the door, right? But they had to, I guess, to build out their book or build out the the story so that you know they 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 start their travels as quickly as they can just rush all that stuff through and they can fill in those gaps uh, later on but yeah it was it was fast and i did like i really did like uh, moraine's wise person role i mean we find out more about her later that you know relative to a gandalf kind of wizard she's quite young relatively speaking and doesn't have the full weight of the experience that uh, that somebody like he would have but um yeah, at, at, at that point, you think, okay, well, he, you've got this great person doing it. She's playing the, the leadership role of this tiny little fellowship, and off they go to start their journey. But I wonder who else they're going to meet. That's that's sort of what was going through my head on the way through. And as we were talking yesterday, I had forgotten that Nynaeve isn't back by this point. I know we'll go back and we'll talk about her arc and episode. Uh, so it's, it's those six people that leave uh, the two rivers together uh, and off they go and you see the trollocs coming down the hill and you're like oh boy this is going to be bad so what happens now i want to watch episode two that's sort of how how it felt uh watching that scene but it was good i was what remember watching it and not remembering how each show opened and closed it's like wow that was fast like they really uh they really wrapped that up quickly i <laughs> i know i've said that three times now but man that that part really really um happened fast yeah, a, a very big sense of urgency that they mm. were trying to convey. Oh, yeah. And I really like, as we talked about during our Rings of Power run, I really like when episodes open and close with the same perspective. I really like that in Leave Taking, we open with Moraine's voiceover and we also close with Moraine's voiceover. You know, here's what happened. She's giving us the story. She is our narrator. She is admittedly an unreliable narrator because she doesn't know a lot of things and one thing i don't think you know that yet i i, I don't think as the watcher you know that she's unreliable right now you trust her well i mean what i would say is that she admits that she doesn't know everything yeah. she admits that she doesn't know who the dragon has been reborn as she admits that um there's just there's just room for doubt from her that she is letting the audience and other people know that she's not a hundred percent certain of. And I actually think that's a strength. I really appreciate when people are mm -hmm. upfront about their, you know, knowledge and also where there are holes of uh, missing information. Yeah. So from one badass woman to the next, Egwene Alvir is the third powerful figure i'll say that we see on screen in episode one i mean we get moraine we get leandrin and then the next person we see is Egwene. 
And this is, I don't know if you've watched that deleted scene um, no. that was released. So, so we can watch that. But basically, the deleted scene of Egwene in the pool and them pouring the different colors and talking about it was deleted from the episode. We saw it first at WatCon. Uh, Wheel of Time then later released it. We saw two two deleted scenes at WatCon. Only one of them has been released. But when we see Egwene on the hilltop, we can see that she's got those colors in her dress still from what was the sacred pool ceremony. Oh, uh, I missed that part. Okay. Um, but we, anyway, I, I, I do wonder now if that was how it was meant to open, like that we get Egwene in the pool is this powerful imagery. And for reasons that I'm sure there are a lot of very good ones, timing, explanation, um, too much exposition, whatever you want to call it. We just get uh, Egwene and Nynaeve on the top of this cliff where Nynaeve is telling Egwene to be a woman is to be always alone and never alone. Uh, when the dark surrounds you, feel this braid and know that we all stand with you. So really, really honing in on the impact and the importance of this braid to Two Rivers women especially, that this braid is meant to anchor you to your home. This, this braid is indicative of what it means to be a woman from the Two Rivers, that you will be secure while also maybe being a little bit isolated, especially when we learn later in the episode that Nynaeve has asked Egwene to be her apprentice, which from Rand, we learn that that means that Egwene will take no husband, will bear no children, will basically be live a life of isolation, and that this braid is is truly meant to root her and to provide comfort in times of of great darkness. So that's how we open. And then, you know, she gets pushed into the river and we see her fighting it. And then we see her surrendering to the river as she floats down. The next time we see her after she scrambles out of the water is when she walks into the inn. Everyone cheers. There's an awkward conversation between her father and her. Uh, and I just say awkward because I really hate the delivery hmm. <laughs> of his dialogue to Egwene, but that's okay. It's two seconds. We move past that. We see Egwene throughout the night assuming her role as daughter of the innkeeper and moving around, helping, serving, basically. Her and Rand don't get to talk until they're cleaning up the kitchen. She tells him Nynaeve said something, and uh, then they just bang it out. We then hear uh, post-coitus as they're sitting in front of the fire that Egwene has been asked to be Nynaeve's apprentice, that she, Nynaeve thinks that Egwene will be able to listen to the wind. And Rand kind of storms out at that point because he says, you'll have no home, no husband, no kids. It's a lonely life. I need to get home to bed. Bye. And he pieces out. From there, I'm just going to, I'm just going to touch on this because I don't know when else to bring it in, but I will address this now. After Rand leaves, we see a merdral, a fade, yes. the eyeless, walking into town on his horse. We also hear a whistling in the background as the merdral walks in. That same whistle is then heard the next day as we see Padden Fane rolling into town. So Padden Fane is making that whistle. A beautiful, beautiful little wink wink to the audience. Okay. Beware. 
Pat and Fane. I did not notice the whistle. I mean, I, I yes, I saw the Black Rider, very Tolkien, like, come into town. Uh, really ugly, though. Like, really ugly. At least you can kind of see its face, right? Hardly any nose, no... Uh, and and then yeah, Patton Fane comes the next morning. He seems so happy though when he arrives, right? Whist- whistling away as he arrives. Yes, and uh, that whistle, I will say, pay attention to that whistle because you will hear it throughout the season. You will hear it as they're approaching Shadar Logoth. You will hear it like more than a few times. You might hear it in the ways. There are moments throughout the season that you hear that whistle, and every time trouble looms okay so after we see pat and vane and we'll talk about that when we get to matt we have Egwene and rand on the mountaintop i would like to talk about that yeah i mean it's it's a really beautiful scene it was one of my favorite still images that came out when they were Mm -hmm. really you know giving giving us twitter of timers uh content before the release of season one the photo of of rand and Egwene sitting together and the pain that you see in Egwene's voice. We, Rand at this point, after having a night to process, seems to have accepted the decision that he knows Egwene will make and he loves her unconditionally because she wouldn't be who she was if she didn't make the choices that she was going to. We'll talk about that in the context of Rand. Um, We see Egwene and Nynaeve standing on a bridge together, listening to the wind. Nynaeve says to her, that the wind sounds wrong, doesn't know what it is. She's never heard anything like it before. That night after the lantern lighting ceremony, it's time for joy. Like basically, let's lead these people back, but let's show them what they're missing. Like let's show them the happiness and revelry that we have here. She pulls Layla and Perrin into the dance circle. She's then dancing with this guy, Tom. And Tom gets real dead real fast. Yeah, poor Tom. He, that's Beard sort of right how you get him. introduced to the Trollocs. Yeah, I think. <laughs> Whoa, yes. that was uh, time to celebrate. Then a boy dancing with the Gwaine stumbles forward, stabbed in the back. Monster <laughs> runs into square. Wait, there's lots. Mayhem, stabbing. Nynaeve gets a Gwaine. Those were my notes as I'm... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, Nynaeve grabs Egwene, they work on healing, the old man dies. Anyway, we just see Egwene's panic. She's obviously never experienced anything like this. She's terrified. Her and Nynaeve are later dragging a body away. A trollop comes in and grabs uh, Nynaeve. Egwene watches Nynaeve get dragged away. This is her mentor. This is her person. She loses it. She just starts screaming Nynaeve. She runs through the village screaming Nynaeve. The next morning is when we see her next. When she is in the village healing people, she sees Rand, realizes that, uh, of course, Rand is still alive, gives him the biggest hug. While, like, Rand asks her, where's Nynaeve? Oh, she she's gown. Like, she got her ass dragged out of here. And then he says, can you heal Tam? And of course, it's Moraine that comes in and does the thing. But that's that's our impact. Like, that's our impression of Egwene at the end of this episode is she is a woman who will step up and and help and assist and be a leader to her people in the wake of true disaster and terror. And well, she is and one the, of the she four. And Nynaeve, yeah, she and Nynaeve also fought the Trolloc, right? So they actually stood up to it. That great scene with Nynaeve who screams back at the Trolloc, right? Ah! And they actually do a pretty decent job of fighting with the one Trolloc. It's not until 
you know, a, a second one comes in, and that's when Nynaeve gets dragged away. Uh, so they 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 they're clearly holding their own, even though it's new for Egwene to be part of this, which was really uh, shows the strength of the character, which is excellent. Uh, also, her her inner strength the next morning, right? So a lot of things she's lost her her mentor, like you said, she's gone, but she's still sticking with the people. She's trying to do the healing. She gives she doesn't care about Rand and is sulking. She just is focused on the town, which is really good. And then of course she says she's told you got to come with me because you might be this dragon person. So let's go. I know she. I know um, Maureen doesn't tell her that part of the prophecy yet. Oh, she does. She uh, she says yeah, like one of you four is the dragon. So let's fucking go here kids time to go more trollocs have to get the white tower so general thing on Egwene, i would say really strong character somebody who you admire immediately you know that she has a huge arc she is more like the mary or pippin i would put her in the mary the brave companion on the trip to frodo i'll call rand frodo because we know rand becomes a major person down the road but i would put in mary so strong has some some uh, backbone to them. Uh, obviously, is you, you you get the sense, and I can't even tell you what specific scene it was, but you get the sense that she's going to be able to have the power. Oh, there's that scene with her and Nynaeve on the bridge, and they're listening to the wind. And Nynaeve says, "Can you?" I, I, that's where Nynaeve says, "I think you'll be able to hear the wind." And Egwene says, "I I don't know what that is." And Nynaeve says, "I've never heard anything like this before either. So this is all new to me." But you you do get the sense that she's got powers whether it's the same type of power as Moraine you don't know at this point obviously but obviously just starting out uh, a really strong character and I would say coming out of the first episode probably my favorite of the characters she just went about her business did stuff she's got the braid she learned how to calm herself in the water everything that uh, about Egwene this episode to me was was very powerful yeah she definitely takes everything in stride and adapts very quickly to her circumstances. And I think we see that in the first episode, especially during the Trolloc attack, is that mm-hmm. she, there's terror. She watches, you know, someone she grew up with get stat, like speared and die in front of her. And she is there helping to heal and helping to really try to save lives. Uh, she's a leader. She's someone that people turn to in times of crises. And I think we start to see those those traits in her, uh, certainly from the first episode. Yeah, you could see that um, she would make a good wisdom. Just she has the characteristics. You don't really know at this point what a wisdom is. You know that they heal, that they're uh, a point of strength for a town. But you can see why Nynaeve has chosen her to be her apprentice, because she's got all the qualities that you would want to have in somebody that would be the focal for your town. That was sort of my take on Egwene in the first episode. Yeah. Uh, And speaking of wisdom, let's just let's jump into Nynaeve and what we see from her in episode one, because it's not a lot. No, she starts off slowly, right? Like you don't get her at the beginning. Uh, trying to th- just flipping back to see where you first meet her. I mean, we see her on the cliff with Egwene, you the know, push. at the beginning. The push. Yep. Be strong, Egwene. Hooyah! Yeah. <laughs> Scene of a woman near a river welcoming somebody with a braid. Welcome to one of the women circled, named Egwene. That's when you first get Egwene's name. Uh, who gets thrown into the water, then that, and then you don't see Nynaeve uh, for a little bit. Yeah, we next see her when she's scrubbing the pool when Maureen comes rocks. in. 
<laughs> I mean, well, we get we get a glimpse of her actually at the um, Wine Spring Inn when Moraine walks in, and you know, Nynaeve, of course, is the one who walks up to Lan with her hand on her belt knife and says, "Name yourself, stranger." So she is like that powerful. Like Nynaeve packs a punch. Mm-hmm. She is impulsive and brave and hot tempered and we see all of that in the moment when you know people come barging into her turf in her town and you just walk in here with your hood drawn up no sir you will tell me who you are and you will tell me who you are right now name yourself because like i got a knife and i'm not afraid to use it yeah yes yeah she's definitely comes across as a woman who knows what she's about Although she doesn't. I mean, you, you also know that she's still quite young as being a wisdom because Maureen says you're, you're, you're young for a wisdom and you haven't been doing it that long. I think it's three years she talks about. So you know that she's got where to go, but she was she's very defiant, uh, does not like Aya Sedai, uh, very protective not. of her of her information that before when she was talking with Maureen. Uh, had, clearly, she might have had respect for Maureen, but she was very dubious about getting close to her, I guess is the way I'd put that. Great with a sword, doesn't back down, uh, fights the Trolloc. I mean, she pushes Egwene uh, behind her, stands up to the Trolloc, and does a pretty good job. Starts going badly, but then Moraine and Magic come together and, and help her out. And unfortunately, gets dragged away by a Trolloc, by her braid, the bastard. And then we don't see her anymore. And uh, that I had forgot, like I said, I'd forgotten that part. And I'm just wondering... How I know she's important. I I remember how she comes back in, but I had completely forgot about that little twist. And I don't even know if that happens in the book. I can't remember. Uh, I think she hides or something in the book, and fa- she tracks. We she don't even them. see. Yeah, we don't see the attack through the perspective of any of the townspeople. We just hear about it the next day. We're very right. much in Rand's perspective um, right. at his house, and then the next day we hear about how Moraine and. Lan basically saved the day, but we see nothing about what happens in the village, which was one of uh, the things I was most excited to see on screen. And I'm really, I'm really happy with the amount of attention and detail that Rafe and team put into the actual attack on the village, because that is where the biggest impact happens. And how, I mean, uh, this is just like a message to the book cloaks in general, but how disappointing would it be for TV if all we see is like the fight between the Trolloc who comes up to visit Tam and Rand, if that's the only like amount of violence and the impact of like the Trolloc attack that we see on screen? How terrible for TV watchers and and then like coming into the village the next day and being like, oh, well, that looks super shitty. Wow. Some this shit was went bad. down. Yeah. Holy cow. <laughs> what happened to that building? It was big. It's now gone. I don't understand. Right? Um, yeah. No, it was, uh, it was really that, that whole battle scene was actually quite a intense. It was, it showed, uh, thing. Also at the end, uh, the town folk were starting to stand up to the Trollocs and you could see them actually cornering a few. The women's circle, you know, who take on the Trollocs single-handedly. That being said, more Trollocs came in. The townsfolk knew they were over their head. That's when Moraine rips the building down and starts throwing big yeah. boulders and stuff and truly saves the day. But uh, it was it was a great 
sequence. I think it's about 10 minutes long in, in the, in the episode, but very intense, very captivating. I should actually go back and measure it because it happens so quickly. Like bang, 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 as the action goes through and you get to see a little bit of everybody. You see that, uh, you know, Tam and, and Rand uh, protecting themselves. You see Egwene and, and Nynaeve trying to work together, trying to help the town. You see Moraine getting all badass you see matt running around uh, trying to find his sisters because his mom's a drunk and then you see perrin and um, his wife fighting a trollic also very successfully i might add so you see the backbone of the two rivers folks which is quite nice it, there was a lot of comparisons in my little notes to hobbits right so like little uh, little things their naivete of the overall townsfolk you know, uh, we talked before, like Perrin, she looks like a normal person. And Rand then says, don't talk. We don't want, we don't know what she'll hear because they, they just don't know what the power are. But basically, you know, they, they talk about, the town folks talk about war and Sadai and it's not any of their business. And we just want to be our own people. We just want to live in our town and go about our ways. That is a very strong ode to the Hobbit style in Lord of the Rings. They just worry about themselves and... Uh, and go forward. Anyway, um, we were talking about supposed to be on about naive, but I thought I'd throw some of that other stuff in there. Pretty pretty dramatic that she's gone at the end, and obviously we don't know what's happened. So you have to watch episode two. Good thing they dropped episode one, two, and three at the same time because I would have jumped immediately. <laughs> ah, what happened to Nynaeve? Uh So anyway, uh, great character though. Great character, great and the actress character. is outstanding. Um, Zoe Robbins. Yeah, Zoe Robbins. She's she's really good. She's she's something special. One thing that I, I will bring us back to with respect to Nynaeve, and one thing that I really love that the show did is talk about her distrust for Aes Sedai and the reasons to it, and yes. also the fact that Nynaeve understands the impact of what it means to be able to listen to the wind, because she says... First, just in terms of building Nynaeve's character, she gets pretty snippy when Moraine <laughs> asks her if she's had her braid for one year, maybe two. And Nynaeve says, uh, bitch, it's been five years yes. because Nynaeve looks young. And this is something that, again, the show was able to convey in two quick back and forth sentences between Moraine and Nynaeve. Mo like Nynaeve is very defensive about how young she looks because she has been holding this position and she has to deal with people constantly questioning her authority because she looks young and not old enough to wield the power that she has. She says it's been five or six years just because townspeople don't necessarily record every birth and death um, that those records aren't clear to someone who's on the outside. It doesn't mean that every person in the town, like every person in that town, is aware of who each other are. And we don't need records for outsiders to come in and like start poking their nose in. So you don't get to know about my parents. You don't get to know how long I've been in this town. You don't get to know my backstory. That is for me and me alone to give that information to someone else if I choose to do so. I love that. Mm -hmm. And then when she's talking about the old wood wisdom who basically yeah. raised her from the time she was a baby she says um, that old wisdom could listen to the wind and she marched her ass to the white tower wearing the rags like of the two rivers yes she's not rich she doesn't have money but she marched herself to the white tower and the I Sedai said mm, you know what no, thank you. And she was turned away from the White Tower. And this is the story that Nynaeve has been raised on, that the Aes Sedai are pretentious, that they're judgmental, that they will turn away women who basically don't fit their mold. And right. that is 
I think, really important to know about Nynaeve and why she has such a chip on her shoulder, because she is someone who is very much the salt of the earth. She's a good person. She's a strong person. And she does have self-confidence, I would say. She she knows that she's strong and that she's important. Uh, what I... What I, as you were going through that, it did remind me, and I actually made note of it in my head when when I was watching the show. You learn that Nynaeve's not from here; she's from somewhere else. She got raised by the thing, so she's an orphan. Uh, so again, they do that stuff very, very quickly, very tactfully, and so you learn a lot about Nynaeve in a very short amount of time. But you do have to pay attention. Right? She also had huge respect for her thing, and and the image I had as it was going through was. Uh, when she was talking about the wisdom that raised her, she didn't look like you. She didn't act like you. So therefore, she maybe she wasn't beautiful. Maybe she wasn't. So I, I have no respect for you because you didn't get to know the person. You just made judgment based on the cover of the book, right? That was sort of how what I took about her anger towards yes. the Aes Sedai. Uh, and Moraine did a beautiful job, I thought, by the way, of deflecting that and said, yeah, that's, that's really too bad, but that wasn't me. So, you yeah. know. It was it, that little exchange was uh, was really well done to me. One of my favorite scenes. Imposter syndrome is what I think uh, really came across in this episode about Nynaeve. Not that she is insecure in herself, but that sometimes when people put those doubts on her, you can't help but doubt it. Your your own abilities. You can't help but doubt whether you are qualified for this role, given your young age, whether you are qualified to be an Aes Sedai, given the history of them rejecting women like you. Are you good enough? And that is something that Nynaeve, it really forms an integral part of her character in this season, I think, where she doesn't feel like she necessarily, at least through her perspective, like she needs to put up this front. She needs to be, she needs to be the face of bravery and she deflects and she defends she gets defensive when people when people question her mm -hmm. and i think a lot of that is because she has this imposter syndrome but that's, a, that's just my reading of her it makes a lot of sense actually I, I i like that we're rolling along uh we should probably uh, jump to to the lads yeah, let's talk about the boys. Let's talk about Matt. We'll save Perrin and Layla for the end. Barney Harris in this episode, the first time we see him, he rolls up to the table where <laughs> Perrin and Rand are sitting with Danya. And he starts, you know, rolling some dice. Let's get some bets going, boys. And throws the dice down, loses the toss, loses all of his money. We see a bracelet on Danya's wrist. Matt, after Rand and Perrin say no, we're, we're kind of done gambling with you. We're not going to take any more of your money. Uh, he says, cool, I'm just going to, you know, do my own thing. And then he goes over to Danya. We see him a little bit in the tavern, but we can see that mostly Rand and Perrin are together. Matt that night walks outside, sees his mom, who's watching his dad be very lecherous, flirting with women in front of his mom, Natty Coffin. Uh, he takes his mom home. She's drunk. The girls have been left alone all night. He takes the girls, says, you know what, why don't you sleep with 
come to my place tonight instead of staying with mom and dad, because he can probably tell that there's going to be a full-on situation there when his dad gets home. And his mom is not in a position to be able to take care of the girls. So he takes his sisters, he protects his sisters. We see the goodness of Matt in that moment. The next day, Matt is the one who comes up to Rand and Perrin brings them some beers and checks in on Rand and just says, how you doing? What did nine, What did Egwene say? And basically, like, how are you coping? Which I think is, even though we don't see necessarily Matt in the best light throughout the season, his first impulse is to check in on his friends. His first impulse is to see how Rand is doing and to really detect that Rand got some shitty news last night and he can see that Rand is not feeling 100% okay. And then, of course, uh, we get the scene of Matt going to Padden Fane's wagon and having Danya's bracelet. So from good guy to theft yeah. or thief, he stole Danya's bracelet. Bad with games, bad with gambling. He's got his addictions. He's got his foibles. But you can also see his heart of gold, I would say, uh, looking after his yeah. sisters, trying to help his mom. And yeah, going to Rand, what happened? They're obviously troubled. And Rand doesn't answer, but that doesn't stop Matt from being inquisitive and being there for his buddy. And, he, and actually, that fits as well with um, him at the end of the episode. He just goes because... Because he's told to, you know, there's nothing for him at, there other than his sisters. Um, I assume, I don't know if they're stepsisters or, or uh, completely yep, biological, same blood. father. Okay. Yep. And, and, uh, and, and what you see also, and again, another troubled soul who doesn't have a proper home, uh, a proper upbringing, uh, you know, basically has had to be on his own for a long time. That parallel with Nynaeve, uh, where she's had a, you know, She's been an orphan and then raised by a wisdom. Matt is growing up in a troubled home and had to become a lot of what he is on a thing. So I get left with the sense that he had to become clever with clever, tried to become clever with money out of necessity because he had to look after himself because his mom wouldn't have money for sisters, food and stuff. Yeah. So he's, he's been the provider. Uh, so that was the only part when he leaves at the end. You don't really get the story of how will his uh, family be providing for the sisters. I guess he's trusting his mum and stepfather or father that uh, uh, they'll look after, and but they don't really address that. That's the one hole I'm sure that will circle back to him as a character uh, as they go forward that he misses his sisters, but they didn't really address that a whole bunch. That was be the one one of the holes in the in the in the show. I think, yeah, I mean, we definitely see, and we'll see this as the, the episode or the season progresses, but there is that guilt of leaving. And that's with, with him and Rand on the road. And he's like, I like, we need to go home. I need to go home. I need to take care of these, of the girls. Um, He keeps coming back to the girls. Uh, the scene, in, it's in episode three, but when Rand and Matt and maybe it's episode, sorry, it's episode four, when Rand and Matt and Tom go to the Grinwell's house, and there's the girl there. And she reminds him so much of his sisters, like you can see throughout the season, the weight of that responsibility weight, like is is with him the entire time, it truly is a burden that he carries wherever he goes. Um, I mean, even the reason that he stole Danya's bracelet, we see that it's so that he can get some money that he can pay for lanterns to be able to give to his sisters so that they can light them that night. He doesn't buy a lantern for himself, he buys it for his two sisters, so that they both have a lantern. Rand and Perrin say we want you to 
We want to give you money because your luck was not with you last night. We want to give you this money so that you can light, you can get these lanterns for your sisters. So I think even like his closest friends know how important it is to him that his sisters have the semblance of a normal home. In the battle, Matt is terrified. He hides, uh, goes inside, asks his mom, where are the girls? Screams it at her. And then he leaves. He, He puts himself in danger to find the girls. He goes with them, finds them, takes them to, tries to present it in a way that's still protective of them. You know, he asks them, you know, when we play hide and seek, like, let's go to that tree. We're going to go to the old oak and that's where we're going to hide. And he takes them and hides there with them in the darkness while the Trollocs are ripping apart this village and killing people that, again, he's grown up with. He spent his whole home in. His priority is his sisters and ensuring their safety. And so, yeah, I know we didn't spend really any time with him while they were leaving the next morning. The next morning he comes in, you know, he gives the girls uh, back to Natty and Abel Cawthon. Natty says, oh, girls, thank the light. You're okay. Like, Natty, no, it was not the light that protected these girls. It was your son. You can at least thank him because you were too much in your own way to think about the care of these of these girls. Matt was there. Matt is always there uh, when you need him. And then the next thing Matt does is check in on Perrin because Perrin comes out carrying Layla's body. And Matt's first question is basically, how are you? And he is there at his friend's side again when someone needs him the most. So just really small moments of powerful impact with Matt even though we kind of see him in a bit of a scummy light and scummy upbringing in the first episode. Yeah, very complex character, a uh, very uh, conflicted character. When when he's running through the town, he basically did a really good job of hiding, if you know what I mean. Like he would he would be not found or seen by the bad guys. He would sneak around and and he never confronted, you never at least I don't recall him confronting and trying to fight anybody. He was better at um, stealing away and hiding. That was more his gift watching the show. Um, He, uh, yeah, like I said, complex. And you learn a lot about him. Again, I'll go back to the show. They did a really good job of teaching you a lot about the characters really quickly, really subtly without hitting you over the head. But you learn, you know, like I said, troubled, troubled youth looking after himself. uh, And he he did it in a different way, but yeah, still uh, treats his friends very importantly. So you, you like Matt quite a bit in this, although you realize that he's got foibles, but complex character. So that's all right. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of complexity, more than I, hopefully yes. not a spoiler. In the first book, we don't really get any perspective from Matt. So we don't know what he's thinking. We see only Matt's actions. We don't see the reasons behind them. And that is why it is so difficult to bring a character like Matt Cawthon to the screen because the way Matt talks and the way what Matt says is not reflective of what he feels. He is someone who is very action-based, which we see. He is protective. He is loyal. His first priority is not himself. His first priority is the people that he's responsible for or that he feels a responsibility for. Um, And that's what I really took away from episode one, as well as an explanation as to why and how he feels that way, which I, I appreciated the changes that were made from book to show for that reason. 
So basically, with Matt, that's where we leave him uh, at the end of episode one. Lots of, lots of trauma to unpack there that makes him a very complex character uh, and gives an understanding, I think, to how and why he acts even throughout the rest of the season, even with the dagger that he picks up in the next Mm -hmm. episode, impacting kind of his sanity and the way he thinks. At the end of it, he is still very much rooted in, in what drives him, which is the people that he is responsible for and that includes his friends he he is consistently the one who checks in on his friends first while they're mired in their own problems and no no one really checks in on matt no one asks matt how he is doing uh he's this gambler who always loses he's a little bit dismissed his follies are kind of laughed off by his friends that at least that we see in this episode and of his friends, let's now finally get back to Perrin and the great fridging of Layla in this episode, uh, which I have finally made my peace with right. in large part, <laughs> thanks to Allie and Gus over at Wheel Takes. Perrin, we get introduced to in the tavern. He makes a couple of side comments about Matt. We see him and Rand standing together. Perrin's uh, checking in on Rand. What did Egwene say? How was the ceremony? Rand says, we didn't really get a chance to talk about it. Nynaeve comes up to Perrin afterwards, and she says, uh, Perrin, iron is hard to work alone. So uh, go be with your fucking wife right now, bud. Yeah. <laughs> like, go check in on Layla, who is currently in the forge. That's where you should be. Not here in this tavern after Egwene's ceremony you should be with your wife and Perrin then goes to the forge we see him with Layla we hear Perrin say to Layla you didn't go to the ceremony yes I was puzzled by that and then puts his hand on Layla's stomach and they kind of hold there so anytime in a show you know when they put hands on stomach we can we can surmise that there has been either there was a pregnancy they can't there can't be a pregnancy something is going on with respect to fertility we don't see Perrin and Layla lighting or sending off a lantern but we do see them at the lantern ceremony holding each other very tightly based on Perrin's comments to Layla about you didn't go to the ceremony and what we are uh, what is revealed later on in the season where Basically, Perrin is accused of being in love with Egwene by Nynaeve, and then Rand kind of being taken aback by that. Egwene and Perrin reconciling as in terms of friendship. I What I took away from this, knowing how the rest of the season plays out, is that I think Perrin married Layla because she was pregnant. And she knows that was the reason. And then they lost that pregnancy. And so when Perrin says to her, I love you, there is still a question in Layla's mind as to, do you love me or do you love her? Did you only marry me because there was a baby? And now are you regretting that because the baby never developed? That is what I took away from this episode which changed my initial watch of this and my questions about what was going on. I think I think there was a, a shotgun wedding, if you will, and choices were made that may not have been, Perrin may not have been married as early as he was 
but for a uh, pregnancy that I uh, that I anticipate resulted in a miscarriage. Yeah, I, I kind of thought she was pregnant uh, still, by the way, but I, I didn't. I had forgotten about the uh, part later on where Nynaeve asked if he loved if he loved Egwene. So that complexity is there again. They do a really good job to subtly create a complex character, right? And I know in, I think the first time, first couple of times I watched it, I was so confused because in the book, there is no wife of Perrin early on. I'm like, what the hell are they doing? Why are they doing this? I don't really get it. But obviously it builds to stuff later and it gives you at least some interest in Perrin because there's not a whole bunch that happens to him in the book in the first book. So it gives him a plot line and a more complexity of character. And the reason why I thought that she might still be pregnant is because when they are fighting the Trollocs and they do any turns around and sees her, but couldn't stop his ax early enough, he basically hits her in the womb. Uh, and that to me killed her and the child. That's why I thought she was still pregnant. So right. he, he ended up, causing the death of his child and his wife accidentally and you can see the anger and the and the might that he had uh but that that's why i thought maybe it was uh, they were still pregnant and but he just wasn't excited about it right but uh, but obviously when everything happened that was uh, uh that was devastating and and so sad uh, that you know here, here they are they fight off a trollic successfully and in the heat of the battle he kills his wife and unborn child that that's what i picked up from that scene and uh he comes across as a a character of sympathy you don't know a lot about him in this episode but you feel so bad for him at the end of it and he's got nothing to hold him in two rivers anymore and off you go but we don't know anything really about his parents i don't think we met his parents we don't understand anything about his childhood we know that he is quiet uh that he seems simple Right. She looks like she looks normal. You don't see it get a lot of quotes from Perrin on the way through. And yeah, I did pick up that, you know, dude, you should go home to your wife. Uh, so he he does do that. So he, he seems to be a bit of a loner, maybe a little simple, but you have a lot of sympathy for him at the end of the episode. I think and this is like with Perrin, he is such he is com like they're all complex. Um, there wouldn't be 15 books if yeah. they weren't complex characters or Indeed. 14 books in a prequel. But Perrin is someone who is very cerebral. He's someone who is very much in his own thoughts. He doesn't always speak what he thinks out loud. He's steady and he's stable and he works best through uh, actions without always voicing what he's thinking which is a very hard thing to put on screen. How do you convey, you know, what we see parents struggle with, which is uh, throughout the season, which is his relationship with violence? Right. How do you convey the difficulty that he has, unfortunately, without, you know, having this fridging of Layla? We see in the moments before Layla is killed, Perrin going absolutely berserk. Like he, the Trolloc is very dead, and he is continues to wail away at it. We see him lose yes. himself in the heat of battle. His eyes are a little bit crazed. He is red hot in the moment. And yeah, then he turns and he is the one who kills his wife with the axe. That trauma then follows him throughout the rest of the season. Like, is he going to be able to pick up a weapon again? Or is is what he experienced the last time. Like it is a fear absolutely that lies in him. It is something that he is going to work very hard to overcome. 
hopefully, because, or, you know, maybe he'll join the traveling people. He, the Tuatha'an, because, yeah, the, the relationship with violence is something that is is pretty integral to his character and the best way to communicate that to show watchers only without actually having the benefit of being in Perrin's head is to show what something that occurs to him that is so traumatic that we can all understand the immediacy of the lost losing your spouse is something that people can immediately reconcile with being and and being the one to kill her like that is a trauma that everyone can understand on some level, at least uh, sympathize with and hopefully not empathize, because uh, that would be awful. But that really sets the tone for Perrin for the rest of the season. And, you know, when we see him looking haunted, when we see him in his thoughts, we can only imagine kind of the pain that he continues to deal with. And whether that's because, you know, it was his wife and unborn child, which was the year takeaway, or if it was, you know, just the impact of, of killing someone when they weren't really in a great place relationship wise either and the haunting thoughts that maybe come back to him like was this intentional <laughs> did i did i mean to do this was there something in me like did i love her enough that i think is uh, going to be formative for Perrin's journey throughout the rest of the series let alone this season so big stuff big stuff that we leave Perrin with um and yeah as you said not a lot holding him or tying him to the two rivers when Maureen says it's time to go and All maybe right, a I little bit freeing. <laughs> yeah. Like, okay, let me, let me get, let me avoid and uh, run away from, you know, this trauma pit. Uh, I need to get the fuck out of here. I really would have liked to see, and maybe we'll see this in seasons to come, but the night that Perrin spent in the forge with Layla's body. Oh, Yes. Yes, because, yeah, he comes out the next morning, right, um, carrying her out. And uh, you don't know what's happened in those five hours or whatever it is between no. the time the battle happened and the time he comes out in the morning. But, yeah, you can see the trauma. There was, his act, the actor did a great job, too, because even at the very end, I made in my note, I, uh, it, it was almost like when he was told he had to go at the end, he, he looked relieved. Like, just the... the, the the way the camera caught his face, he, there was relief on his face. So like you said, now we, this is his chance to start anew and maybe put the stuff behind him. So uh, again, the subtleties, the direction that they did in this episode was excellent. And we got to learn a lot about the character through very little interaction. Yeah, absolutely. One small thing I'll, I'll note just again, because I, I don't really know where to put it in terms of character stuff. But when we see Perrin and Layla running to the forge and protecting people, you know, getting people inside the what they thought was relative safety. That's when we see Padden Fane kind of taking in what's happening. He had a cup that he was drinking and he puts the cup down and kind of saunters away. And yeah, we don't slips see away him. into the darkness, right? So he just kind of fades back. That was actually what my yeah. note said. Padden Fane slips away to be on his uh, thing and just avoids all the stuff. And you have no, no yeah. hint. I mean, you... Yes, he's a minstrel. He's the the singer, if you will. But yeah, you don't know what you don't know why he's uh, no. This little that. this peddler has a slight smirk on his face. You can kind of surmise, I think, especially on rewatch, which is what we're doing, that uh, much of this was anticipated. Yes, that uh, the invasion is not a surprise to him, and he is certainly not afraid. Uh, you know the yeah, the he way wasn't he. Yeah, he just kind of faded away. Not in the slightest. Yeah. 
So an interesting, just uh, especially on rewatch, the more the smaller details that you see kind of come out and take away from it, the way Pat and Fane was in episode one really stuck with me and even throughout the rest of the season. So we, we've talked about Perrin, you know, his relief at going, let's talk about Rand. We've touched on him with a lot of other perspectives, notably through Egwene and also through through Matt and Perrin, because, you know, he's he's present for a lot of it. But in terms of our Rand that we see, our first glimpse of is of him walking down the path with his dad, pulling the arrow when he sees rocks, you know, kind of sliding down. So he's clearly on alert. He's clearly trained with a bow and arrow and he looks ready to shoot some comments about how the wolves are being uh, pushed down the mountain and no one quite knows why. And uh, a a light moment about how he used to pick berries for Egwene and always made sure that he kept some of those for her. So he's he's clearly been holding a candle for Egwene his entire life. Uh, He shows up at the inn. We get to see his reaction to Egwene walking through that door that night. um, At the inn, he pulls out a singular berry for Egwene and says, "I've I've had this." My dad told me this story about what I used to do, and then he he pulls out the berry, and Egwene um, Great line. was very How much... long has that been in your top pocket? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> has that, that been in your pocket all day? <laughs> Which was like very Ferris Bueller yeah. to me, like, you know, at the end when Rooney's on the bus, like, would you want a gummy bear? Yeah. It's been in my pocket, <laughs> so it's day. nice and warm. Yeah. <laughs> We uh, see, you know, Rand at the table, hear about a war in Gelden, which we'll get back to when we when we meet Loghain in episode four. So that's the cold open uh, of episode four is is what's happening with Loghain in Gelden. Losing, we uh, get some exposition about Matt and how his luck is certainly not with him and the boys are used to funding his losses. Then uh, him on the mountain... Ran talking about, you know, how he always envisioned his life, his wife, his house, his children in the two rivers. This has always kind of rooted him and anchored him and and realizing that his vision for his future might not actually be um, what it's what it is, quote unquote, supposed to be because Egwene is going to go on a different path. And Egwene says to him, I'm going to and then Rand just says, I know. I already know there are no further words. They just kind of hug each other. And Egwene looks absolutely devastated. And Rand kind of looks like he's made peace with this. Yeah, he sulked a lot. My takeaway on Rand in this episode, and I think (laughs) the first time I watched it, I didn't really like the first episode because when I, because I had read the book and Rand is much more of a hero in the book, right? Where he's uh, the reluctant hero, but he's the hero. Uh, not, a, not a Thomas Covenant type, if you've ever read White Gold Wielder. But he um, he's a reluctant hero, but he starts to come into his own and, and you cheer for him. I just found him a moody, sulky, quiet thing. Yeah, you see a little bit of heroism when he and Tam are, are fighting the Trolloc. But for the most part, of the characters that they went through... A, I think we learned the least about Rand, right? So we don't we don't know anything. I know the cold. I think it's episode two. We get the cold open about the the mum who's is that episode two where the it opens with the the uh, heroic woman fighting in the in the winter months. Oh or, uh, no, that's episode seven. Oh, is it that late? Wow. Episode okay. seven. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, the blood snow. Blood snow. Yes. Um, anyway, 
uh, I, I just you don't learn much about him. You see him being a bit sulky and whiny. Yeah, he gets to have sex with Egwene, and that that that's a highlight of his day. Uh, but then he gets he kind of sulks off because of the whole wisdom apprentice thing, and realizes he knows what that means, and so he goes back and fortunately goes with Tan because probably saves Tan's life. But um, he he wasn't heroic. He wasn't really all that likable, to be honest, in this episode. Uh, and he, he was more in the background to, to everything else that was going on, right? So if you rank the characters, you might think of Moraine being the, the wise, heroic one and being out front. And Ran, yeah, he was all right. You know, I don't I don't really know much about him. I don't know how important he is. And I don't really like him frankly in this episode yeah. so that, that's that was my takeaway on him obviously we get a lot more of him going forward but he starts off really weak which again like i said when i first watched the episode it left me with a bad taste because i liked Rand so much in the book and i really didn't like him in episode one right so uh, again you learn more as this season goes along it's like the very first time you watch like Rings of Power, episode one, there was some things like, wow, this is, I'm not sure I like Galadriel. And then, of course, you love Galadriel. So Rand, <laughs> Rand is uh, in the same boat. But I'm not really sure I like him. I don't really have any sympathy for him. He seems like a little petulant, spoiled guy. Yes, he works on a farm with his dad. Yeah, he, he helps out. And yeah, he's got some talent. But I see nothing about him I like right now. To that, I mean, I completely understand your point, what I will say, especially upon rewatch and coming back to Rand is, you know, he's been asked to reimagine his entire life over the course of basically a six hour sleep. Yeah. So he he leaves this thinking like, this is the woman that I love. This is the woman that I want to spend my life with. Like, you know, we hear about how he picked berries for her from when he was like, <laughs> five years old, he gives her that when now that he's 20, like he's still very much like you have always been the person for me. And then he's supposed to, at the drop of a hat, be like, nah, bro, this isn't going to happen. You need to, like, figure out different dreams because I'm not going to be a part of your life, basically. And that's a lot to put on someone, especially a 20-year-old, to say, like, everything that you thought was going to happen is not going to be that way. And I think he handled it with a plot. Like, I, I really think that he took that time to process and him on the mountain with Egwene and basically saying, like... I'm not going to stop you from chasing your ambition and your dreams. This is what you want. This is who you are. And I love you so much that whatever and however you want to live your life, it is not for me to dictate that our life yeah, needs I didn't to be intertwined. Him. I didn't believe him. <laughs> I, I was watching that scene and, and he still seemed, I don't, he, he, he didn't say it from yeah. his heart, right? I, I I think he said it to make Egwene feel better, but I don't think he was feeling better. That, But Kudos I think to it the was actor, still right? still selfless, still selfless. He's trying um, to be because he's still trying to prioritize her above him, and I I really appreciated that, especially on rewatch. Like I said, we get the scene of um, Rand and Tam when they're settling down, lighting the lantern. We hear a little bit of exposition about the her. We don't hear uh, Carrie Althor's name. We don't we don't hear Rand address her as mom or Tam address her as wife, but we know that that's the missing person in that scenario because there is, it's just the two of them. It's these two men who uh, are, are missing, are missing 
a lady the figure. one who kind of yes. brought them together. Uh, and so lighting the lantern, Rand's like, do we have to be up here for it? Shouldn't we be down in the village? And Tam saying, it doesn't matter where you are. They just need to know that there is a light to guide them home. Some beautiful exposition about the turning of the wheel when your soul gets spun out again when that is no one quite knows so all you can do with your life is basically make the most of it while you're here which is gorgeous gorgeous uh commentary from tam we get the trollic fight uh i'm just going to call the trollic narg because that's who it is in the book (laughs) narg comes storming in tam grabs the sword uh we see i think it's still a little bit choppy when we get the zoom in on the heron on the blade it's a heron mark sword we all get that very clear Tam is injured. Uh, We next see when Rand and Tam come into town with Tam slung across Bella's back. We actually see that sword already tied around Rand's waist. So we don't get any reason for why it's there. But what we can surmise, I think, as viewers, uh, without having seen the entirety of the season, is that Rand saw the sword and just strapped it on and took it without having the background. Right. So he used it because... um, Tam got hit by the Trolloc. Rand picks the sword up and then kills the Trolloc, right? With well, the sword? Uh, no, he he stole, he stabbed him with the fire poker. Tam still True. had the Sorry. sword in his hand. Right. Yeah. Right. So Tam but still then, had the sword. Rand, but then, of course, Tam drops the sword. It's picked up. Rand belts on the sword. That's all we see um, of that moment. And it's not until episode seven that we get the flashback to Rand and Tam in the woods. Right. And Tam's fevered dreams talking about that and what happens thereafter. So... Rand is, of all the people, Rand is the one who is most obstinate about leaving the two rivers and demands an explanation from Moraine. Why do we have to leave? Why do we have to go? You need to, like, you really need to convey a lot more because my dad is here and like we see Rand's loyalty to his father you need to to tell me like straight up why i'm leaving this man who has just been injured and who needs me and moraine you know basically then explains to him like 300 trollocs are coming one of you is the dragon they are here because of you like they are here for the same reason that i am one of you is the dragon reborn so get the fuck on the horse and let's get out of town pitter patter kids gotta go so yeah i mean i uh, on rewatch and, and seeing how how the season takes Rand and like the the information that's then filled in for the TV viewers, of course, book readers already know. But uh, what we see, I'm actually most excited to watch Rand on this rewatch because there is stuff that the show is deliberately hiding from us and right. not showing us until they think that we need to know. So it's uh, yeah, it's going to be fun to see a lot of the events. I I did like Rand at the end of the season, but yeah, the first couple of episodes I didn't, and that reminded me of it. Why? Because he was like I said, just a petulant child. But he'll grow. He'll grow. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm 20. optimistic. Yeah, yeah. But so is Egwene, and I thought she was great. I know. Well, Egwene's just uh, Egwene's a whole different <laughs> yeah. level compared very, to Rand. Very. So yeah, that's that's what happens in leave taking. Our thoughts. Let's leave it with um, Rose and Thorn of the episode. Uh, Rose, I would say the the scene with all the lighting of the of the lanterns to me it was just really good. It showed 
a common thing with all of the village folk. It was done very quietly. There was hardly any speaking through that entire scene. And you could see people were very emotional as they lit and fl- let the lantern float down the river. Uh, I just thought it was just beautifully done. It just um, it, it told me a lot about what the process was about. And it didn't, I guess not, nothing was said. I just thought it was just a, a beautiful, a beautiful scene. Yeah. So, like, and as I was thinking about the thing, a, a, a sub rose. So I love the lantern scene. A sub rose is when the Trolloc goes to attack Nynaeve and Egwene and screams at her. And then Egwene, or sorry, Nynaeve stands up to it, holding her little blade and screams right back. That would be my my very very close secondary uh, rose just because it was it was so uh, so well done um thorn uh, i not, i mean it happened so fast that there was nothing that other than um matt leaving and they don't really explain because of the pace that they have to go at why his reluctance to leave he just they don't really feature him in that departure at all but i know they'll come back to it but um uh, that that just as, that was my only thorn, but it wasn't a bad thorn. Like it, generally, the show was way better on rewatch. I'm going to rewatch it again because you've said a bunch of things in this that have me <laughs> that I that I that I missed. That I'm going to go back and rewatch before I watch episode two, and I will not make as many notes on episode two. I will watch it a couple times though because I'll see if I can pick up some more of those subtleties. But it is interesting as a never reader coming into these shows, all the things that you picked up and all the little egg, you know, the little like you said, the hats off to the fans, little things here. It, it, every time I'm wa- I watch. Uh, Bohemian Rhapsody. I get the same thing. There's this opening scene where they're cutting to uh, and and Freddie's leaving the house and there's this picture of Marlena Dietrich on the wall. And uh, that picture um, was then re-imaged by Queen two or three times in their career because Freddie liked it so much. And there's a photographer they used, a guy named Mick Rock, that used that as his feature. And you, if you see the Bohemian Rhapsody video, you'll see them up with their, and Freddie at the bottom with his hands crossed. It's a perfect mim- mimic of the Marlena Dietrich picture. Nobody ever talks about it, but as the as a crazy fan of, of them, every time he walks by that picture, I just smile. I think it's awesome. And they show it one more time later in the movie. And I just love it because that to me was a nod to the fan. So listening to you talk about it, it's I, it's really enjoyable because you pick up all these little things that they give a, a little salute that they don't have time to explain. Uh, but now that I've heard a few more of them, I'm going to go back and watch it. I'm hopeful that I've like alluded to enough as well for people who have read the books, things that I touched on that uh, really show to me the care that Rafe and co are putting in, mm-hmm. but I don't want to dwell too much on because as someone who hasn't read the books and doesn't know where everything is going, I don't want to focus in too much on little things. So there yeah. are moments um, that really stand out to me that really symbolize a lot of what is to come for all of these characters. And one thing I will say, so on Saturday, November 5th, uh, the Twitter of Time Awards happened. I had the opportunity to speak with Michael Kramer, um, who did the narration or is doing the narration uh, for Origins of the Wheel of Time, which is a book by Michael Livingston that's coming out on Tuesday, November 8th. This is full spoilers. Uh, It answers a lot of questions that we as book readers haven't had an answer to since the series finished in 2013. So it goes into some of those answers. Uh, So Michael Kramer and Kate Redding have done the narration for that, like they did the narration for the entire audiobooks of The Wheel of Time. 
And Michael Kramer was basically saying when he was doing the narration for Origins, he learned a lot about the themes of Wheel of Time Uh that Jordan had put in there that didn't always translate to the books. And he really appreciated uh, reading that in Origins and then seeing some of those themes play out in the TV show. So a lot of the themes that Jordan really wanted to be present and may not have been magnified in the books are coming to light on screen. So it should give you a greater appreciation for where the television show is going with it. So that makes me really excited. I'm super stoked to read Origins of the Wheel of Time. Do not read it if you are a never reader or a first time reader. Wait until you're done the series, but it's going to hopefully illuminate a lot of the stuff and really tie into the TV show in that way. So hearing that uh, has really, really excited to Um, hopefully read Origins, and then continue my rewatch of this entire season of of The Wheel of Time on Amazon Prime and see what else I can draw from it based on intention behind Jordan's words and the series itself. So uh, my rose from the episode, I think is, I really think it is um, the Easter eggs, yeah, that Rafe put in there, the small touches, the whistling with Pat and Fane, um, the smirk, the things that you miss in your first glance or you don't know where the series is going. Small things to do with the women's circle uh, at the ceremony, it comments about Matt and gambling, uh, little things that we see and what we know and, and where they're taking this uh, just has me more, the more I watch these episodes, the more reassured I am that we are going to go in a place that is fun and exciting and and new uh, in terms of content, but not new in terms of the spine and heart of these books that I've loved for so long. My Thorn is missing out on the scene. It was released at WatCon. It hasn't been released to the general public yet, but there is a scene between Tam and Egwene uh, the morning after... Uh, the morning after Rand and Egwene sleep together, so that the morning after the women's circle ceremony, um, there is a really, really, really nice scene between Tam and Egwene uh, that I wish they'd left in the show. It's really lovely, and it's just a conversation between two people, and you see a lot more of the heart of Tam in that. Um, nice. And uh, nice. yeah, I, I hope I hope they'll release it to the public. It's really beautiful. But that is that is it for us on leave taking. We will be back next week uh, talking episode two with the Wheel Weaves podcast. That's Danny and Brett, um, and we'll be getting their perspectives on their rewatch of episode two. Uh, Danny is a first time reader. She's currently on book eight, which is Path of Daggers. Uh, Brett has been reading these books for as long as I have. Uh, so they're a husband and wife team from Edmonton, Alberta, who are, uh, who are ready to share their insights. On yeah, I, this I look forward to uh, hearing you and your fellow nerds. And I say that in all due respect to uh, them. They haven't met me yet, but <laughs> I, I have no problem with people being nerds. I'm a bit of one myself. Uh, and, and just hearing more because the perspectives are, are fascinating. The depth of this series is incredible to me. Just the, um, 
because so many books, how the world gets unfolded in so many different layers. And I'm sure as Robert Jordan went along, he came up with a whole bunch of new concepts. And I've heard you guys talk before about how book four is so much different than book one and how the how the world has evolved. And you can just, once he immersed himself in it, you know, created this incredible thing. I really do hope that... Um, with the TV show that more people get involved in the world because it, uh, it is fascinating and, and uh, the sh TV show is outstanding, really. I mean, I, I would put it in the same category as Rings of Power, which I thoroughly enjoyed as a Tolkien fan and, and really appreciated the nods that they did to the world Tolkien created. Um, I, and listening to your enthusiasm, I look forward to hearing theirs because um, it, it's just such a complex, good world, so well thought out. Right? So Yeah. I, uh, I mean, we'll see. I'm excited too. It's, uh, it's going to be a good, a good time to go back and watch all of these eight episodes, um, yes. before the end of the year. All right, folks, thank you so much for listening. Weather and Mountain podcast can be found on all major podcasting platforms. We are still on Twitter. <laughs> so you can find us on Twitter, Instagram. We have a little nook in the Wheel Reads Discord server where we love to get some feedback. You can pop in there. Uh, you can email us at featherandmountainpodcast at gmail.com and any unfounded criticism or unsolicited comments about Rafe and team, you can send it to Paddenfane's whistle at uh, gofuckyourself.com <laughs> <laughs> Thanks again, friends. We'll see you next week with the Wheeled Weaves podcast. Bye! Bye!